Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Our text today will be taken from the reading in the prophet Isaiah. You may be seated. Let me begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks this day that you have been gracious enough to gather us into your presence, to hear your word and receive your gift. And now, Father, as you have delivered Jesus to us and granted your Holy Spirit to create faith in our hearts, we pray that you would open our ears to receive your word this day, so we might come to know you better and rejoice in your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are going to uh, be confessing the Athanasian Creed here in just a few minutes. Now, I love this thing. It is long. It is dense. It is repetitive. Uh, this is what I use. Uh, you're going to be in my confirmation class next year? So your dad's class, you learn about Bob the Builder and the Holy Spirit, right? In my class, you have to write the Athanasian Creed if you don't do your memory work. It's remarkable to me. People remember stuff from Jim's class, not my class. Anyhow, uh, this, is, uh, this is, I love this thing. This is wonderful. But as we confess it, sometimes it gets to be a little long, and we start to think to ourselves, what in the world are we doing this for? Why are we saying all of this stuff? What, what are we getting at here to say that there is not one, uh, 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 oh, I don't even remember the creed now, there is one begotten, not three begotten, but there is not three gods, but one God. And I mean, this all gets very convoluted. What is the point of it? Well, actually, there, there's a great point in confessing this creed. As we meditate on this creed, and as you start to get a little frustrated with it, kind of focus on the words. Because what, what we learn here is really about the majesty of our God. This creed is there to help us fight against errors that crop up in the church from time to time. It focuses us both on the glory and on the grace of our triune God. It serves to remind us how holy and set apart our God truly is. That we can't sort of get our God figured out by some mathematical equation. He's not some science experiment that we can lay on a table and dissect and figure out. This creed reminds us that our God is a transcendent God. This is exactly how he describes himself to us in the book of Isaiah when he says these words. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. This God of glory and grace and majesty is beyond us. He is beyond our ability to understand. He is beyond our capabilities to comprehend. And this is intimidating to us because what this means is that this God of ours is not one that we can control. And we're uncomfortable with that. We don't like that. We like to be in control and we cannot control this God means he's a little dangerous for us he's not all that safe and this is one of the reasons why i find it important to confess this creed every year it shows us that god is in fact beyond our control and we need that because far too often what we have done is we've tried to take the holy and the transcendent god and we've tried to master him we've tried to figure him out we sort of seek to domesticate God and turn him into our own sort of religious pet, our divine buddy. We want God to be safe for us. We want to be comfortable with him. 
So we wake up in the morning and we have our cup of coffee with God. We read our devotions, which give us nice, encouraging, and affirming words about ourselves. And as, as helpful as that might seem, what I'm afraid of happening right now in the church is this. It is we have forgotten sort of the awesomeness of our God. Just as the kids were singing this morning. We've forgotten just how holy this God is, and we've turned the holy and righteous God, the Lord of hosts of angelic armies, the one who pours out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah and Egypt, into a super encouraging therapist. If there's anything wrong with being a therapist, it's just that God's not one. And the God of American Christianity, this God that you and I really want to serve, I'm afraid, bears no resemblance to the God that we encounter in Isaiah this morning. Now, Isaiah was not very comfortable when he entered into the presence of God, or really when God's presence came to him. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, as we know. He was, he was called and sent by God to proclaim the truths of God's word uh, to the people of Israel. And today we hear about that time, in fact, when he was called. Isaiah was in the temple in the year King Uzziah died, and he was worshiping and he was praising God. He was probably there in prayer. But suddenly, as he was in prayer, he saw God. He saw a vision of God, though it probably wasn't a vision. He really saw God in all of his glory. Only God, as he saw him, was not contained in this temple. Though he promised to be in this temple for Israel, he was not contained by this temple, as though he was there to do Israel's bidding. Isaiah saw him seated above the temple on, the, on his throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple with glory. And, and suddenly Isaiah is overwhelmed by this scene. He sees angels surrounding this holy God. And the angels were, if you and I were to see one of these angels, we would be utterly terrified by ourselves. We would be fearful of our own death. These terrifying angels are surrounding God, and they're covering their faces with their wings for fear of the glory. And yet, as they sit there in fear, they also praise, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We sang that this morning, and as we sang those words, I wonder if we even fathom who we are singing with, who we are singing to. But as this song echoes throughout the halls, the whole temple begins to shake and fill up with smoke, and Isaiah realizes the truth about himself, that he is a sinner in the presence of a holy God, and he is a dead man. He's overwhelmed. And he begins to cry out his own funeral song. Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah remembers the truth that nobody can see God and live. The glory of God exposes Isaiah's sins and he confesses his unclean lips, and he knows that as a sinner he can expect nothing but death from being in the presence of the glorious God. If you and I were to stand there in the presence of God and his glory, it would be the same for us, I think. 
Though God is here present with us today, he has hidden himself. He's put himself in his word, he's put himself in his sacraments, and he has hidden himself. And this is good, because if he were here in all of his glory, I think we sinners just might be done for. We might be joining Isaiah. And this is intimidating to think about, especially because this God is coming back one day. And we're going to say this today in the creed that we believe that Jesus Christ will return to judge both the living and the dead. And then we say these words. At his coming, all people will rise again with their bodies and give an account concerning their own deeds. And those who have done good will enter into eternal life. And those who have done evil into eternal fire. So if Jesus comes back today, let me ask you this. If you're standing before him on the basis of your own good and your own bad, is there going to be any hope for you? These are terrifying verses. This isn't exactly the therapeutic God we wanted to encounter today. Isaiah is standing there in the presence of the holy God, and it says, when Jesus returns, we will uh, give an account of our deeds, and Isaiah begins to give an account of his deeds, and the only thing he seems to be able to find is his sinful lips. He recognizes his own sinfulness because in the presence of a holy God, our sins are exposed. And when God's holiness comes to us as sinners, it not only finds unholy, unclean lips, but filthy hands, filthy ears, filthy thoughts, and filthy hearts. God in his glory is the death of sinners like us. Woe to you and me for our sinful, damnable, impure, and unholy lives. So Isaiah lays down to die. That's all he's got left to do. There's nothing left for him. His hands are empty. Isaiah is dead where he stands. But now this is strange. For God's not yet done with Isaiah. Isaiah is finished for himself. He finishes his funeral song. But then, as this happens, an angel from God descends to him. Isaiah writes, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he's got to be thinking to himself, What more can you do to me? I'm already a dead man. What more is there? But what? And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The divine holiness of God was the death of this Isaiah. But then in encountering this holiness, a word from God comes down to him. A word that he puts inside of this coal. And the coal comes to Isaiah. And this word that is in the coal that touches his lips is not a word of wrath or death or destruction, but of mercy, of forgiveness, of new life. When Isaiah is sort of left there for dead with nothing he can do, he is finally someone with whom God can work. So God raises him to a new life. He forgives, he absolves, he raises. The unclean lips that resided on Isaiah's face were purified with fire. The angel says, your sins are atoned for, your, your guilt is removed. 
Whatever it was that was keeping Isaiah from this holy God, whatever it was that was separating him from this holy God was taken away, was removed, and a word of mercy and grace was given. He stood forgiven before this God. See, God, instead of using his holiness to leave Isaiah condemned, shares his holiness with Isaiah, invites Isaiah into his holiness. He who is pure purified Isaiah. He who is glorious welcomed Isaiah into his glory. And what we learn from this passage today is that God's holiness and his glory is known best and how he shows mercy and grace. How he gives it to Isaiah with this word. And with this word raises Isaiah to new life. This is of great comfort because you and I will one day stand before this same God when Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And if we try to stand there on the basis of our own holiness and on the basis of our own works, we will only be exposed for the sinners that we are and we can expect nothing but the eternal fires. That's why when we confess those words today from the Athanasian Creed, those things are going to be terrifying to us apart from Christ. So as we confess those words, don't think about them apart from Christ. Because you are not apart from Christ. You are in Christ. And in Christ that means that all of your sins and all of your evil deeds have been removed. In Christ, all of your sins have been atoned for and forgiven. And they won't be brought up on that day of judgment. Because you see, you and I have something that is far greater than what Isaiah had. Isaiah had an angel who came down to him and placed a coal on his lips. For you and I, God does not send an angel. But the Father sends the Son, the power of the Holy Spirit. And Christ comes to you and to I in the flesh of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes down from heaven and puts on our flesh. And he lives a perfect life in our place. And he dies on the cross. And in that death, he atones for all of your sins and all of your guilt, and it is washed away, not with the flaming coal, but with the precious blood of Christ. Unless you fear that he has not done this for you, he continues to come to you now. In the waters of baptism, it's very kind of Jesus not to deal with us with burning coals, <laughs> but with water. And when you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ declared that you were a person for whom he died. You are one who is forgiven. In that water, the same promise that was given to Isaiah is given to you. You are atoned for, and you are forgiven. You are washed and made holy, and will stand as such on the last day before God, free from the fear of death. In baptism, Paul tells us, Christ crucified you with him and raised you to a new life so that your sinful nature has already died. You already have a new life by faith. You have died in Christ and have been raised to a new life. You will stand free and forgiven on the day of judgment. This is marvelous news. Because this God we are dealing with, he's just simply not safe for us. We cannot control him, no matter how much we might try and do it with our sinful acts. He is not safe. 
It's like that marvelous line in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember that line where, where the lion is coming, the great lion Aslan, and one of the children is nervous about this because she's nervous about lions, and rightfully so. And so she hears about this lion who is coming to save uh, the mystical land of Narnia, and she says, a lion? Good heavens, is he safe? Someone looks at her and goes, well, no, he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And that's how it is with our God. Is he safe? No, he's not safe. He's God. <laughs> but he's good. And his goodness is higher than our thoughts can imagine. And his goodness is far away from the ways of our goodness. And his love is deeper and stronger than our sin. And maybe that's how we should approach the altar today. As we come here this morning to receive the sacrament of the the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. When the holy and mighty God sends us His holy and mighty transcendent Son in bread and wine. And as we come to this altar today, we come here knowing that this God that we receive in this sacrament, He's not safe. It's not safe for us to take the body and blood of Christ. But it's good. Because he's promised with this very body and this very blood to forgive your sin. So that when the bread and the wine, the body and blood hit your lips today, the promise will be true for you as well. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned. May Christ preserve us in the faith in these words until life everlasting. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the forgiveness and mercy you have shown us, for we do not deserve it. We are sinners, and yet you are gracious. So Lord, on this day, as we have gathered here to hear your word and receive your gifts, remind us that you are a glorious God, that your glory is known best through your Son, Jesus Christ, who gives us faith and strengthens us into life everlasting. Sustain us by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.